Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. Have you ever thought about how your clinical health data is used after you sign that authorization consent form at your doctor's office, or if you're participating in a clinical research trial? Currently, we don't have a good, widely adopted system to manage the granularity of our health data. In this episode, our featured guest, Wendy Charles, discusses some of the important considerations regarding the ethics of managing patients' healthcare data in the 21st century. We talk about how we can start encouraging an ethics-by-design approach to building software and how dynamic consent management can provide more control over a patient's own health data in the long term. In addition to her role as Chief Scientific Officer at Burst IQ, Wendy is co-chair of the IEEE Standards Development Working Group for Blockchain and Healthcare and Life Sciences. She's also a member of numerous other professional committees, including the HIMSS Blockchain Task Force. She's an associate editor for Frontiers in Blockchain and reviewer for the Blockchain and Healthcare Today publication. She's an incredible voice and advocate for regulatory compliance and research using blockchain technology. I really enjoyed my conversation with Wendy, and I hope you all do too. If you haven't already heard, IEEE is hosting an ongoing virtual series with a bunch of different ways to get involved in the community, including paper presentations, keynote events, training workshops, startup pitch competitions, and more. Check out the link in the show notes for more details. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Wendy M. Charles, who has a PhD in clinical science with a background in neuroscience. And she spent most of her career in the regulatory and academia world. Of healthcare. She's written a number of publications on blockchain in the health IT space and currently serves as Chief Scientific Officer at Burst IQ. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you so much for joining today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Ray. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I love that. That's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> I think the first thing we can start off with is just if you can give a quick background of yourself so that the audience has some context about, you know, who you are? Oh, sure. So you hit on some of the big aspects already. I have been involved in clinical research for almost 30 years, um, going back and forth between components of operations and compliance. And so those are areas that really frame my thinking about how we best implement digital technologies into healthcare. And so I became involved in digital health technologies about five, 10 years ago, maybe seven to 10 years ago, and how to implement them in a responsible, compliant, and ethical way, and then um, learned more about blockchain, and it just took over my life. <laughs> Common thread here, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So what really drove you to the healthcare world? You know, my mother is a psychologist, and a few of my relatives work in medicine, so I was exposed to healthcare from kind of an insider perspective early, even in high school. And so I proceeded through college um, with a healthcare focus and entered a graduate program in neuropsychology that had a really heavy focus on empirical research. And I have remained in healthcare research operations, compliance, and technology ever since. Tell us where you went to school. I think it'd be interesting for the audience to know as well. I will share. I uh, did my undergrad at the University of Colorado Boulder and got a master's degree at the University of Memphis and then my PhD in the, at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Very cool. How did you actually first hear about blockchain technology? Yeah, so in the summer of 2017, I attended a digital health research conference that was largely attended by pharmaceutical companies and researchers. And from the very first speaker, um, 
which was uh, Spiros Papatropoulos from Teva. T um, speakers such as Munderbara, Jeremy Son, they talked about how blockchain would disrupt and transform the pharmaceutical industry in three to five years. It, it was not just about, it wasn't just hype, it was about how this can create a new approach to advancing data collection and management. And I, I walked away from that conference saying, I, I have to learn about this new technology. I became completely obsessed and I immersed myself in meetup groups, educational events, books, recordings, anything I could find to learn more. And I kept volunteering in more and more blockchain related activities in healthcare until I had the opportunity to work full time in this industry. It's really taken over my life. That's awesome. I think the first time we actually met, it was in, in Boston, right? There was a conference. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was the Blockchain and Telehealth um, Healthcare Today conference, so that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was. So how does your academic research experience influence your perspectives in the healthcare infotech industry? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, after having a career involving empirical research, I am much more insistent on evidence than I think many people are. And with having a background in regulatory compliance, I, I really insist that organizations think through their regulatory approach. So kind of to touch on both evidence and compliance. Um, about evidence, um, many blockchain developers focus on the cool capabilities of what their cool their tools can do, like the shiny features. But they don't offer any evidence that healthcare organizations would ask for. And they healthcare organizations would want to see research that demonstrates like effectiveness, efficiency, or satisfaction with a process. And life sciences industries in particular are looking for peer-reviewed publications. So if a company developing a blockchain technology doesn't have evidence that their tools work as intended or have demonstrated some benefit, it's really hard to break into that market. And for regulatory compliance, as I shared, I spent about half of my career involving research regulatory compliance at academic medical centers. And I, I oversaw implementations of digital health technologies. So I have a very strong drive toward compliance. So when it comes to blockchain, like if you're going to process or store protected health information for a covered entity in the US, it's important to know, um, has the company tested and documented all of the applicable HIPAA administrative, procedural and technical safeguards? If they're going to target individuals in the EU, um, have they set up nodes in the EU since data cannot leave the EU? Are there mechanisms to track individuals to honor their right to be forgotten? And there are many research regulations that have to be in place as part of the design of the technology in order for the data to meet the requirements for data integrity. You really can't retrofit a technology to fit into a compliance requirement. And so that's why I am very active in, in educating people about privacy by design and compliance by design. Interesting. You know, one thing I thought of when you're answering that is sometimes it's hard for a startup to be able to get publications about or evidence to prove evidence uh, that their you know solution works sure. without having people use it first. Right. So <laughs> it's kind of a, a challenge for them. So what, what do you say to that? Well, there are ways that you can partner with an organization and collect evidence from a pilot. So there have been hundreds of pilots done that have produced some interesting findings. So at least that's a start. And then when performing implementations with larger organizations, it's really valuable to collect metrics throughout and determine how well you've met your targets um, for, I don't know, I always like the usability framework of effectiveness, efficiency, and satisfaction and perform kind of a mixed method study of uh, qualitative and quantitative information. But to capture information throughout, research is typically an evolving process. And so even if you start out with a pilot, th the best approach is to really think through how you can continue to collect evidence throughout um, your uses and implementations and all the way through to when you get full-scale enterprise implementations. What would you say is the most important health information opportunity right now that nobody nobody is talking about? 
Oh, well, <clears throat> okay, other than blockchain. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Uh, I, you know, I am fascinated with digital tattoos. I, I personally don't have any tattoos, but I think digital tattoos are just revolutionary. Tell me more. So, in, yeah. yeah, instead of ink, digital tattoos use 3D printing as well as circuit printing technologies, flexible electronics and materials, and they can apply a digital tattoo on the skin for that lasts days or weeks. And some of these are act like patches that can serve as sensors for electrophysiological symptoms um, to help mm -hmm. monitor health conditions such as arrhythmias, um, sleep disorders, and other digital tattoos are used like a QR code that you can scan someone's digital tattoo to bring up a personal health record. So as we develop more and more as we, as the healthcare industry develops more nanotechnologies, I think these are gonna get smaller and smaller and more capable. So that, that would, that's what I would say is um, an important health innovation that no one's talking about. Yeah, I haven't heard too much about that. You know, when you said have someone with a barcode tattooed on them, that made yeah. me think like, I'm sure some of my audience will think, you know, they don't wanna have the mark of the beast on them or something like <laughs> no. that, right? So Agreed. there's a lot of ethical considerations around those ideas or innovations as well, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Digital tattoos at this point are considered temporary and uh, serve specific short-term purposes um, for Would it be like after a surgery? A like maybe someone would have a surgery and they need to be monitored for like two weeks, three weeks after. Exactly. Um, there's higher compliance with a digital tattoo than there is a patch, for example, mm -hmm. or if someone had to hook themselves up to digital monitors at home. So I, I think it has real promise for enabling more virtual monitoring of somebody. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like a, a long way. <laughs> Probably ahead so. To make that more commonplace, but it's still very interesting and I think um, has some application. So cool. Yeah. Answer. How has COVID-19 impacted clinical research operations? Yeah, you know, I'm excited to see that uh, COVID-19 has driven clinical research to become more virtual. Mm -hmm. So there was a movement toward this for a long time. Um, research, past research has suggested that between 70 and 80% of eligible research participants live two or more hours from an academic medical center conducting research. So there's been interest for a long time about bringing studies to eligible participants instead of always having participants come to the research center. Well, with the risks of exposures from COVID-19, research organizations really accelerated the efforts to virtual trials to conduct as much as they could remotely. So like um, with informed consent, which is the most sacred part of research participation, this can be conducted remotely um, with a, between a researcher and a prospective participant, say via video conference. Mm -hmm. And participants can sign electronic consent forms. And there has been use of remote data capture methods for a while, but this is really accelerating too, really enhancing use of electronic patient reported outcomes, electronic sensors. You can send drugs directly to participants or, have them go to um, a local lab or have blood collected from a traveling nurse. So one of the things I, I find exciting about this is that this change in COVID has really forced researchers out of their comfort zone of 20th century research thinking and into a new way of thinking about how we can use 21st century technologies. And because research can be done ethically in a remote setting. And I'm, I'm glad to see that we're exploring ways that research can be conducted safely in a remote setting. Yeah, absolutely. Telehealth this year has exploded in yeah. many ways. Yeah. And it's it's great because um, I actually have like a, a front seat view of it. I work at Amwell, as you know, so that's yeah. uh, a company in telehealth. And you can even say that this year alone has felt like 10 years of um, progress you know if you oh, think about the last 10 years so it's really interesting and great i think for the industry and for patients really at the end of the day it's it's better for patients because driving two hours for a study when you don't really need to do that it, 
Yeah, Let, let's be more I, efficient. Agreed. <laughs> I think it's, it's enabled more people to participate in a more practical way. And for healthcare too, it, it's, it's safer. It's more comfortable to allow people to participate with telemedicine. <laughs> so let's get into the ethics by design. So what is the importance of ethics by design? Oh, thank you for asking this. You are, you're touching my heart with this question. Um, this is actually a topic that I presented recently to members of the European Commission, and I'll be speaking about this next week um, at the World Leader Summit. So I'll make sure to put we... a link to that in the show notes in <laughs> oh, that case. Okay. My audience okay. to check it out. Yeah. Great. Uh, when we think about ethics, um, the general focus is on what is the right thing to do? for our patients or research participants and the community. And it's important to think through how can we design patient-centered designs and empower patients to take a more active role in their healthcare or research participation. So as, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, many healthcare and research organizations still utilize 20th century thinking about how to use data and how to engage individuals. But sharing one's health information, you know, individuals are typically asked to provide all of the data collected about them forever, because uh, it's really too manual to administer a data warehouse or data repository to reflect a person's changing preferences. But is that the right thing to do for individuals? How can we better engage, engage people in making decisions that are in the best interest of their care. How can we put the patients first? You know, and one more example that I just thought of, um, when, when people seek care at an academic medical center, there's a, a line in the notice, notice of privacy practices that says the organization may use health information for research. Mm-hmm. I think most people kind of overlook that. And certainly patients have no idea how often their health information is queried for research. At academic medical centers, retrospective chart reviews are the most common form of research. It's a great way to get nurses or interns, medical students, or even fellows to get a research project. And because even though there's institutional oversight of the process, patients don't have any visibility on how their information is being used. So this is why I strongly advocate for kind of an ethics by design approach, especially when using blockchain, because we can build in more modern forms of data management. Um, The one that I find particularly compelling is a more modern form of informed consent called dynamic consent. This is where patients or research participants can be presented with menu type consent processes, such as checkboxes for the types of research where their health information can be used or the nature of private information that they're willing to share. And it's dynamic because the consent process is ongoing. And people can change their minds about their consent as often as they like. Um, Research participants might even be granted the opportunity to see which projects their data were used in. And there's also the prospect that individuals could be contacted to fill out questionnaires or be contacted for new research studies. So I'm, I'm very hopeful and optimistic that we can also use blockchain to create opportunities where we can better design capabilities that are in the best interest of our patients. Yeah, and I think that's something patients want, right? It's something I would want to be able to like more granularly select what parts of my data is being used because I'm happy to share parts of my data so yeah. that science can get better, right? And we can improve and progress in our you know, our understanding of the body, really the yeah. world, <laughs> if you think about it. And I just don't think there's right now it's like been a binary kind of decision you're either all in or you're all out i think what's yeah what's interesting now is what i'm seeing is if you want to use an analogy let's look at some websites that use cookies to track you right yes but now they're actually asking hey which of these types of cookies would you like to share and it's not you know accept all cookies or none i can decide if i want to share my performance cookies or my advertising type of cookies. So I think that's what's going to happen with healthcare eventually. 
Um, I completely agree. And you're bringing up such a good analogy. If we can do that with cookies, why can't we do that with informed consent for research? And yeah. what you are alluding to- Maybe the regulations, to, right? <laughs> Maybe it's just the regulations in healthcare just makes it um, more of a complex thing to accomplish, possibly. Not, um, you're free to disagree with me too. I, I'm happy. Yeah, to, I, what I do you don't think? think so. I, you know, okay. I, you know, thinking about since I've been in research for a long time, I would say it's it's more commonly due to convention. Mm. Informed consent can be obtained in many different ways, and so typically, informed consent is exclusive to an individual study, or let's say for medical treatment. And for research, when it comes to those opportunities to participate in a repository then or like a um, specimen bank, individuals are asked to provide open-ended informed consent to allow their information to be used for future research that has not been determined. And it's kind of this one, it's typically a one-time process. There, there is a component um, in the regulations that has encouraged um, more careful oversight of this open-ended approach. So this concept is called broad consent, and it's, it's a little different. Uh, this was first introduced, um, let me say, it was first implemented by the Office of Human Research Protections in a new version of the common rule that took effect in January 2019. Hmm. Now, with broad consent, there are specific requirements to mention to research participants in the informed consent process. And if a person agrees to broad consent, researchers can conduct future research with identifiable information on data or specimens without the requirement to obtain additional informed consent for those additional purposes, as long as the future activities are within the scope of that broad consent. But this hasn't been widely adopted because researchers want the flexibility of conducting research outside the scope, of course, and it's it's from a technology standpoint, much more than a regulatory standpoint, it's really challenging to track the terms of broad consent. What have, what are the con broad consent forms out there? And if a person refuses to participate in that broad consent, there are no permissible workarounds. So what typically happens is with a retrospective chart review research study, then um, an institutional review board or ethics review board can uh, authorize what's called um, a waiver of informed consent. And in the US it's called, a, and it, they add a waiver of HIPAA authorization. But with broad consent, if a person declines, that person's data cannot be used and the Institutional Review Board or Privacy Board cannot override the subject's refusals. So while, you know, while, while there are some databases that can accommodate these, this dynamic consent capability, there are still manual administration processes. And so with blockchain's capabilities, we can keep the patient or research participant at the center of the process. My hope is that if patients can log in and select among their choices and be more engaged in the process, that more would agree to participate in research and allow their private information to be used. I believe that this is it's a much better approach for that ongoing relationship too between the researcher and the patient and that informed consent remains a dynamic process. Yeah, and one like component of that is like the timing, the timed or temporal consent management. So you can say, I will give you permission to use this piece of my data for a year or for this specific study maybe, or maybe just for this type of organization, let's say um, American Heart Association can only use this. So I think that granularity is so valuable if we can do it right. Oh, I completely agree. Thank you for bringing up that point of temporality. When we consider that many types of research studies are still evolving, patients cannot possibly anticipate how their information could be used at the time that they provide this open-ended informed consent, but allowing them some control over how long they provide consent and allowing them to change their minds, it really is a much more ethical process. Awesome. 
So let's talk about your role as chief scientific officer at, at Burst IQ. I actually interviewed the you know CEO of of Burst uh, on episode fifty six. So if the audience wants to listen to to that episode, please do. Um, oh, wonderful! Yeah, Frank was on a while a while back. Great. Well, and and thank you for asking about my role. I, I serve as the chief scientific officer at Burst IQ. And I get to use my scientific and regulatory background in our efforts to help academic medical centers, universities, and life sciences companies understand how to implement blockchain from both the operations and compliance perspective. And uh, I, I enjoy serving in the role where I get to translate technical details about the platform and explain to scientists what this means for their research and how it can enable some capabilities in their research that they may not have thought of. I, I also enjoy writing uh, lots of regulatory documents and providing regulatory advice to our partners. Um, I've even written documentation that organizations can use to copy and paste into their institutional review board applications. And uh, in my role, I also serve on several international committees for education, advocacy, and standardization of blockchain for life sciences research. It's just so valuable. I, I get to talk about my day-to-day -day experiences in these organizations and share nuances that help others understand how to think through the prospects of using blockchain to solve problems and how sometimes blockchain isn't the right solution. Right, yeah, and that's... Thank you for saying that. It's true. It's not like we're talking blockchain is going to solve everyone's problems, but there mm. are specific applications that are really made almost for blockchain, it seems like. I agree. Um, so let's talk about what are some tactics that Burst IQ is employing to address data privacy and personal ownership of one's data? Sure. Um, well, Burst IQ takes um, maybe a more advanced, I guess that's the right word I would choose, uh, approach to blockchain data privacy and that this is a, a private proprietary blockchain that stores data encrypted on chain. So there's a lot of information in that sentence, but it's, with being able to store data on chain, we can apply layers of ownership and permissions in the metadata associated with data. And like you talked about ownership, well, with healthcare, there's a lot of dispute about the concept of ownership. So for healthcare organizations, we can help them design a data custodian model where a covered entity can manage data necessary for treatment, payment, healthcare operations, research. But patients are offered a user-friendly granular consent options if desired. And uh, the organization um, believes that individuals should have more access. We can help them implement those capabilities of access now, I'd say ultimately the organization believes that individuals should have more control over information about themselves. Do you have any feedback from beta testers of the platform? Oh yeah, it's it's really fun. I get to interact with a lot of the partners on the platform. So um, the Burst IQ's platform has been in production since 2017. And our partners tell us that we save them between 12 and 18 months of development time and offer capabilities that they would otherwise have to seek from two to three vendors. Mm. Our, our first major tester was Intermountain Healthcare, which is a large network of hospitals and clinics in Utah. And Burst IQ helped them aggregate several data silos and perform intensive analytics on chain. And Intermountain Healthcare used their analyses to re-educate doctors about costs and and, and surgical outcomes, which ultimately saved the organization approximately $90 million over three years. Wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Intermountain is such an innovative health system as well. They so they're, are. They're one of Amwell's clients as well. And, and I've, I've worked with a few folks there. They're, they're really um, leading the way in innovation for healthcare. So Agreed. that's awesome. I'm glad they're it's a wonderful return on investment and, and really showed a lot of benefits. What are the biggest barriers, do you think, to blockchain adoption in healthcare? Oh my goodness, there, there are several. Um, I, I'll, go through, I'll go through some examples so that people can understand what we're trying to do and, and what are these barriers that we're trying to address. So first and foremost, healthcare organizations don't necessarily know what blockchain is. <laughs> 
And if they've heard of blockchain, they're not aware that blockchain isn't any one single thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a vast array of technologies that are implemented in different ways with different strategies for access and protections. And blockchain applications in healthcare are almost as unique as implementations of electronic health record systems. So like there's a, there's a saying in health information technology, if you've seen one EHR, you've seen one EHR. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> because blockchain implementation is so unique in healthcare right now, I really feel like that there is that same thinking you've only seen, you, you only know about one they really shouldn't be making assumptions or generalizations about what blockchain is or what it can do. So um, in my interactions with healthcare organizations, I spend time providing education. And I always start out by saying, if you've heard of blockchain, you just need to have an open mind because it's likely what you know is different than what we can do. So um, education is a big part of it. Um, next, you're probably aware healthcare organizations are typically conservative when it comes to trying new technologies, um, there are very few organizations that volunteer to be early adopters. And, and kind of similar to that concept is healthcare organizations want evidence. They, they really yeah. like seeing that others have been successful with large scale implementations and that there's research that has been conducted on those implementations that would show that there's lower risk for taking on kind of an, a new technology or new attempt. And we talked a little bit about regulatory compliance because um, blockchain is newer to healthcare. Um, not many blockchain platform providers currently meet all of the requirements of the privacy regulations, or at least in a clear way. And when HIPAA applies to covered entities and their business associates, which could apply to blockchain platform providers, it applies to information that is created, stored, transmitted, or used about individually identifiable health information. And so blockchain platforms can be subject to these regulations if they process health data, even if they don't store it on chain. And so because health information is so private and there are such critical needs for accuracy, there really does have to be a conscientious approach to the end-to-end -end security and integrity for the data in motion and data at rest. And so I we, we haven't seen as many companies come forward with HIPAA capabilities yet and the, the nature of documentation that would help organizations feel comfortable with their liability. Burst IQ has this capability and we are seeing more and more come to achieve um, the documentation that's required of vendors for HIPAA capabilities, but just not quite that level of maturity yet. I would say though, like if you think about how it was three years ago, even 2017, oh, yeah. it, we've come a long way with that capability. And, and we've, and when I say we, I mean blockchain companies in general and the, the industry and the community. And it, it's been pretty um, just amazing to watch. I completely agree. We've seen progress in a lot of areas, and I think it would just take time and a lot of solid peer-reviewed research to gain broad acceptance. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. The big news last week has been about the breakthrough made by Alphabet's decade-old DeepMind artificial intelligence system, which has essentially solved a 50-year-old grand challenge in biology. That problem is known as the protein folding problem. Proteins are the building blocks and operate all our functional biological systems. They are large complex molecules made of chemical chains and amino acids. This is important because right now, in order to figure out how a specific protein looks like and how it physically conforms in 3D space, scientists typically use x-ray crystallography techniques, which costs over $100,000 and takes up to a year to complete. There are currently over 200 million proteins in the main database, and only about 170,000 have their 3D structures mapped out. That's a fraction of the 200 million proteins. In 1994, 
a computer test was created to measure the accuracy of protein folding predictions. They called the metric the global distance test, which ranges from 0 to 100. Simply, the global distance test, or GDT, can be approximately thought of as the percentage of amino acid residues within a threshold distance from the correct position. Any score around 90 is informally considered to be competitive with results obtained from experimental methods like X-ray crystallography. The AlphaFold 2 system has achieved a medium score of 92.4 GDT across all targets. No other AI system that participated in the challenge even came close to this value. This means scientists can now theoretically use AlphaFold 2 to run computer models that can help determine new biological therapeutics, better understand complete biological systems, and even help with understanding the novel coronavirus. According to DeepMind, there's still much to learn, including how multiple proteins form complexes, how they interact with DNA, RNA, and small molecules, and how we can determine the precise location of all amino acid side chains. This research is currently being peer-reviewed for final publication, and scientists are absolutely excited about exploring this amazing new technology for the advancement of scientific knowledge. I know I'm super excited about the speed in which we'll be able to make new biological discoveries and models. I hope they find a way to make this technology available to all under some sort of open science agreement. I hope you found this news corner interesting, even though it wasn't related specifically to blockchain. And now let's get back to the show with Wendy Charles. So how do you balance? So how does, you know, a company or an organization, how do they balance between regulatory compliance and technology innovation? Oh, yeah. And that's the classic dilemma. Uh, I, I've dealt with this balance conundrum for a very long time. When I oversaw research compliance for academic medical centers, they argued, um, researchers argued that the Institutional Review Board was holding back their innovation. Um, this is a common misconception and it, it currently applies to blockchain. The regulations are technology agnostic. So there aren't unique requirements for any one technology and it's pretty open to the growth of newer technologies. So organizations just have to be fully aware of their responsibilities and design solutions that accommodate the technological safeguards and, and document how they met the requirements. And the most important consideration is that there also must be documentation about the specific approaches and also to treat compliance as a living process where there are regular reviews, risk assessments, and updates. So large regulatory bodies haven't actually created any blockchain specific guidance yet, and, and I'm not sure that they will. Um, but in the U.S., it's, it's really encouraging to see that the Department of Health and Human Services and the FDA have initiated pilots and large-scale blockchain projects. So if we look at these regulatory agencies who are the writers and enforcers of the regulations and they are using blockchain, we in the blockchain community can feel a greater sense of comfort that these organizations are definitely receptive to blockchain and that use of blockchain would likely be consistent with with their thinking and interpretation. Got it. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you there. Um, it's going to take time, like you've mentioned already. Yeah. What does your outlook for 2021 look like? Oh, my goodness. Who, who could have predicted um, an outlook for 2020? <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, I'll answer this question about 2021 through the lens of our current COVID crisis. So... I believe that next year we'll see a, a greater emphasis on virtual healthcare and research. And this requires non-traditional methods of accessing and sharing health information. And organizations will, be, can, will continue to be forced to, into a different mindset about their conventions and think more creatively about care delivery. And I really do believe that blockchain will be viewed as being a part of the solution to integrate data and share data more securely. Um, for beyond, uh, I, I think we're, we'll continue to see a narrowing of the digital divide um, because smartphones are becoming less expensive, broadband is more widely available. You know, people are connecting to their healthcare providers using their phone. 
And, and what's fun is that even some people who don't have a smartphone, they can connect to the internet with their e-readers. So patients are connecting more easily with healthcare apps. And I think we're going to see more patient-centered solutions. I also think that um, we'll see more use and acceptance of consumer-level data that's used in healthcare monitoring and new research. Uh, Consumer-grade wearables, for example, have come a long way. And they are increasingly being accepted as part of what the FDA describes as real-world evidence. Mm. So this is non-clinical, non-medical-grade devices used in community settings, which you know, is a better reflection of what somebody's everyday life is. And so in, in this regard, I think there will be even more ability for patients to contribute health information and be able to ex- exert more control over their data uses and sharing. I personally think blockchain dynamic, um, blockchain-based dynamic consent would be a big part of that solution. What are some other, you know, decentralized ledger technology projects that you think are doing really important work? Yeah, you know, I don't know that I have any favorite DLT project, but I'm really inspired by projects that are improving our ability to manage patient identity in healthcare. And this is such a critical need too. you know, it's not just about sharing information among providers, but it's also about matching patient records between care providers. So um, as a local example, in Colorado, Um, the then director of um, the Colorado Regional Health Information Organization, which is kind of like a statewide health information exchange, had once said that his organization spends $500,000 per year on matching patient identities between healthcare providers in their exchange. So I, um, I, well, as another thought, I'm also really impressed with DLTs used for digital front doors. Um, are you what familiar you with digital? Okay. Generally uh, speaking, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, uh, I, okay. My interpretation of a digital front door is really um, it's integration of personalized artificial intelligence that brings together multiple sources of information that guide patients through identifying when or how to pursue care, the intake processes, such as appointments or information updates. Um, can integrate uh, information with advice, automates referrals, helps with communication, and and and, and more. It, 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 a digital front door is not just a technology that can facilitate healthcare, but it really offers a digital health experience. And blockchain has been used successfully in some organizations to integrate those sources of information and being able to integrate machine learning to give patients that much more targeted experience to guide them in their healthcare journey. So I have a couple of fun questions here. Uh, What's the most influential book you've ever read? Oh, I think my answer changes by the year. Um, the most influential book I can think of right now is um, the book called The Patient Will See You Now. Mm-hmm. It's written by uh, Dr. Eric Topol. The focus of this book is a patient-centered approach to healthcare, and he points out that so much of healthcare had been driven by this paternalistic perspective where doctors told patients what to do. But Dr. Topol focuses on... Um, a shared decision-making partnership between patients and healthcare providers and points out how patients want to be more involved and informed about their care. So I, I found it fascinating because it just helped me shape my thinking about why we had conventions the way we did and why that actually inhibits patients' ability to become engaged in their own care. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's definitely a, a good one for the industry. I've seen that floating around, so it's definitely a good one. Um, yeah. What are what are your thoughts about the singularity that is supposed to happen in twenty twenty five? Especially well, as a neuroscience person. Curious yeah. Answer. Well, 
Okay, I um, I'm not I'm not very knowledgeable in singularity, so I'll talk from it from the perspective that uh, I have with my limited understanding. So it's my understanding that this is like a hypothetical point in time where technological growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible, and creating changes in human civilization where there is. Um, an explosion of intelligence and that intelligence that this super intelligence surpasses human intelligence. So is that the singularity that you're talking about? Sort of. I think also that we, our consciousness might also become oh. part of that super intelligence. There'd be some sort of um, symbiotic relationship with our AI overlords or something like that. Wow. Okay. You know, I, Okay, so you mentioned my background in neuroscience. Um, so this, uh, in my earlier career, I studied brain behavior relationships. And I specialized in memory recovery after traumatic brain injuries. And after having been involved in seeing brain plasticity and the unbelievable capabilities of our brains to, for interpretation, like we can interpret really complex information um, from multiple sources simultaneously. So like think about interpreting emotion and body language and tone of speech and how we make decisions based on gut feelings and reactions. The way that we learn and, and make decisions is influenced by factors we, we can't program we into a computer program, yeah, or an algorithm. I, I do agree that artificial intelligence will make tremendous advances in like precision medicine. It's definitely going to make our lives more convenient. But uh, gosh, a human brain is so unbelievably special. I, I think that there are limitations to what technology can achieve or even um, even to reach uh, a symbiosis. I, I'm, I'm just skeptical on that. And that's totally fair. I I'm not sure what to think. I don't. I just don't know enough about it. I guess. But I have a follow-up question. Okay. Um, if you've heard of the Neuralink company that Elon Musk has now, where he's able to, or the company's able to implant multiple electrodes into the brain, like very small electrodes, and mm -hmm. um, potentially help people who have, you know, paraplegics or cannot move, yeah. use their mind to move, you know, objects. Um, yeah. What is your, What are your thoughts on that? You know, this technology's been evolving for a long time, and um, it it's not to the point yet where we can understand what people are thinking. But of course, there are capabilities where we can, like for example, in our motor strip, um, you activate neurons in the motor strip, it translates into movement, and they can translate that through electrodes into creating robotic movement. So um, what I'm happy about is that the focus of this company is to create much more sophisticated methods of brain-controlled robotics than there had been before. And I am hoping, since my early research was on traumatic brain injury, that this technology will make an impact on those that do have impairments from brain injuries and give them a much better quality of life. Very cool. I'm uh, very optimistic about it as well. Yeah. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, <laughs> and I think we talked a little bit about the digital <laughs> tattoos, so this is very fitting. Yeah. Uh, where would you want it implanted? Uh, you know, I've listened to other podcasts, and and I I noted that um, many of your other guests had just re, uh, re, reviled um, at the concept of a microchip, um, mm -hmm. mostly due to privacy considerations. But you know, it's really not that far fetched. Um, we implant microchips in our family pets so that we can track them and help them if they're lost. Um, when we think about how many aspects of our lives we have sacrificed privacy, you know, our, our phones track our GPS movements, our web browsers track our activity on the internet. I, I do highly value my privacy, but I, I also understand that privacy is, is something in, of an illusion today. Hmm. So I, I would give a qualified answer to that question. <clears throat> I think I, 
I wouldn't be receptive to a chip, especially with considerations of like some of the nanotechnologies used for digital tattoos. And um, I would I would probably get it in a wrist, mm -hmm. but if. <laughs> so there would have to be enough adoption in society where I would not be an early adopter. <laughs> okay. And I would want to control the information stored in that chip. And I would want to see very clear privacy policies to understand exactly how that information would be used. And I would need to know that the chip would provide a benefit to me, such as storing my medical information in a way that could be accessed by a hospital. Like let's say I was brought to a hospital in an unresponsive state. If that chip could provide my health information and allow those providers to treat me effectively, I, I with all those condi conditions, I, I, I think I would be receptive. Good answer. I, you know, I really did enjoy this. I think we learned a lot oh, about, um, you know, the ethics of all these new applications of technology. I think it's really interesting. So I just want to thank you so much again for your time, Wendy. Um, is there anything else you want to share with the audience maybe that we didn't cover? Oh, and, and thank you for having me, Ray. It's been a delight to be on your show. You know, if, if our audience were to take anything away from this discussion today, I, I would want them to understand that, that blockchain is not just a technology for the future of healthcare. It's used right now in healthcare and life sciences research. And I know it will take a while to achieve broad acceptance, but it's really important for organizations to become more educated about what these technologies are and to start projects in a man, you know, in a manner consistent with their risk tolerance. You know, we talked about Intermountain Healthcare earlier. If they use blockchain as part of a solution that helped them save $90 million, with that in mind, I ask the audience, what are you waiting for? <laughs> you heard that, guys. Uh, don't <laughs> wait. Wendy, thanks so much. Thank you, Ray. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.